This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm good. Also, Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? It's going well. Thank you, Andrew. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, legendary English rock drummer Simon Kirk of both Free and Bad Company, among other projects. He has been the only continuous member of Bad Company since their inception, and that band has sold over 40 million albums worldwide, and Simon has played on some of the biggest rock radio songs of all time. All Right Now, Feel Like Making Love, Can't Get Enough, the list goes on and on and on. Though best known for his powerful backbeat drumming, Simon is also a multi-instrumentalist and songwriter. He co-wrote the song Bad Company with Paul Rogers, as well as most of the songs on his three solo albums as well. Though Simon's main commitment is Bad Company, he has also done three tours with Ringo Starr's All-Star Band and his own solo projects. Welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast, Simon Kirk. Hey, guys. And it's so good to have another drummer on here, too. We can kind of gang up on these other two guys, you know. <laughs> there you go. That's we are the yeoman of the industry, uh, much maligned species. <laughs> but anyway. Um, We're going to show them today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good to be here. So anyway, man, such a pleasure. I was looking back and revisiting some songs from way back in the day my high school years and uh, 1974 was a watershed year for lots of timeless rock acts and albums mm. uh, a lot of them that i owned and dug and are still some of my favorites get your wings by aerosmith deep purple's burn was a smoking record oh. robin trower his greatest record i thought bridge of size true diamond dogs by david bowie that was a great one but the best rock album to this 14-year-old music fanatic back then, all 48 years ago, was that first Bad Company album. <laughs> From your count off at the top of Can't Get Enough through the relentless groove of Moving On, which I heard at the gym this morning again, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. Uh, man, your drumming has been a masterclass in groove, precision, and playing what's right for the song from way back then. I used to practice along to that record and try to capture that intangible feel that you gave, kind of a, that laid-back feel, because I was always wanting to kind of push everything, and you were kind of letting everything not slide too far in front. And that's a good thing for drummers not to do, because drummers all usually have a tendency to push ahead, and uh, you never really did. Well, I, I think the reason that that, uh, that happens with me is that uh, fortunately, I, I I play other instruments, and I have played I play guitar and piano, you know, almost as long as I've been playing drums. So I have a that little. That does make a difference. Yeah, I, I I don't really know because Charlie, dear departed Charlie, 
who's a very good friend of mine, Charlie Watts, he played right smack on the beat, almost slightly. If you imagine the beat mm -hmm. was a softball, you know, Charlie was like the 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 the, the right half uh, quadrant of, of that ball. Ringo is just behind. That's how Ringo is. But right. most, most drummers who don't play other instruments, and I don't mean this in a denigratory way, they tend to, they're right in on, on right smack on the beat or a little in front. And, and because I'm, I subconsciously listen to the songs, maybe I'm just a little wee bit behind the beat. That's just the way I am, you know? Um, well, I mean, that's the, you just, I think you kind of summed it up. You're listening to the song and you're playing yeah. the song. Yeah. You know, everybody's going to have a little bit different thing. And I always thought Charlie's hi-hat was a little in front of even his snare drum. You know, just he's just pushing it just a little bit. And, uh, you know, my thing is, I, I came from, I started playing piano first, and then uh -huh. guitar, and then drums. Uh -huh. So my thing is to, uh, when I've analyzed myself, because I have a Pro Tools studio here, I try not to do that too much. But, you know, when you do things that are on a grid, you play with the click, you sure. can see right where you're doing it. And my foot has a tendency to be just slightly ahead, and my snare drum just slightly behind. Why? I don't know, but that's my feel. You know, no, I, 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 we all have a thing, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But I, mean, uh, I asked Charlie once why he lifted his hand, you know, off the hi-hat, which is great. I mean, it's such a, he said, well, I only, only did it to try and keep up with, with Keith. You know, they had that song shattered. Right. Yeah. And it was like, boom, 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 shattered, shattered. And after a couple of takes, you know, doing eight. He got too tired. On the hi-hat. <laughs> so he would do boom boom and lift boom boom, boom boom and and lift his and it was it was part of his style for many many years but, um, but you but that's the first album he ever did that on i've tried to explain that to people yeah go back before 78 the some girls record yeah, yeah. i can't find one instance of him doing that he just started on that record it's really you're right i'm almost sure i mean i, I yeah you know, I, I but that. anyway, yeah. wow, well, yeah, but what a great player! What uh, you love, know? Yeah, I love Charlie. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about five classic Simon Kirk drum tracks right now. Hmm. Okay, there's a couple here that everybody might not be familiar with, but of course, I'm going to start out with the one that took me and showed me how to play a straight head rock and roll shuffle. The first song on the first Bad Company record, "Can't Get Enough." Uh, I played it back in cover bands many, many times, copped all the licks, the dynamics, how well it got bigger at the end, and it's just inspirational playing on that. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I do believe it was the first song that we ever, we, we rehearsed songs, you know, at, at this place, Headley Grange. And a quick <laughs> backstory, I don't know if people out there realize, but we took over from Zeppelin. Uh, they were having some issues, shall we say, uh, John Paul Jones had left the band temporarily and they were recording, I believe it was Zeppelin four there. And they, they, they were not working for about 10 days. And Peter Grant, our manager called Paul Rogers up and said, Hey, do you want to record your album? We said, fuck yeah, we've been rehearsing for about six months. And he said, well, you've got a week. Fine. I mean, we did the album in a week and we went wow. to, yeah, yeah, the whole the album. We recorded the tracks in four days, and the mixing was done in, in three. But the thing about Headley Grange, it was this huge mansion, and all the instruments were in different rooms. So I was in the basement. Boz was in some 
some other coal cellar somewhere in the house. Paul and Mick, Mick Ralphs, were upstairs in the, the huge living room with the amps and guitars. So that counting, one, two, one, two, I'm getting their attention because we couldn't see each other. You had to do that, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, and, and when we listened back to it, I said, oh, can we keep that? That's kind of nice. And yeah. it's become this yeah. iconic. So anyway, I digress. So, And I do believe that Can't Get Enough was the first song we ever recorded. And what I liked about it was, um, you know, I'm doing sort of fours on a hi-hat to right. initiate as one, two, three, four. Instead one, of a no shuffle with your hand. Which happened towards the end because it went on and on and on. And actually, if you hadn't faded it out, that thing went on for about another two minutes before we, we, I think Paul said, for fuck's sake, guys, let's stop. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't stop. It was such, such a ball to play. So yeah. by the end of it, I'm doing, sure. you know, the shuffle beat. But it, it and when, when we went back to the Airstream, because we used um, the mobile studio, the Stones mobile studio, and we listened back to it, we went, wow. Wow, that that was it. I mean, yeah, I mean, what a great feel. And I mean, the, like I said, there wasn't a club band around when I was cutting my teeth out, and I was doing it when I was fifteen and sixteen, playing in bars and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that whole record was. I mean, you had if you didn't know a bunch of those Bad Company songs, man, you weren't going to get the gig. It was just yeah. one of those things. So uh, yeah. we all cut our teeth on that stuff, and rightfully so. Uh, how about Ready for Love, man? That's one of those great slow groove kind of things. Yeah. The four to the bar snare drum that you you kind of do it on the second half of the yeah. verse, and then you do it on the chorus. It's perfect for the song. Yeah. And those little hi-hat barks, which is kind of a trademark for, for you, yeah. are in there. I do um, it a lot, yeah. Well, it started out, it was a Mott the Hoople song, as most yep. people know. It I remember that. Mott the Hoople. All the Young Dudes record. Yeah, when David, uh, David Bowie produced... And, and it became this, it was one of the, the, the most beautiful songs. But I always thought that Mott's kind of did it wrong. If you, I mean, they just didn't have the depth. When Paul Rogers took it and sang it, we just did it in rehearsal. Because we'd done it before, because Mick had done it before, he was kind of reluctant to put it forward again. And, right. and Paul heard it and said, oh, this is beautiful, man. And then, of course, he sung it and we went, oh, my God. This is how it should have been played. So it, it, it became this, and now it's still today, one of the most popular songs, and it's 50 years old, you know, and, and right. people still love to sing it. It's a lovely song, and, and it was a bit of a musical landscape. Yeah, it went, it yeah. went through, you know, the, the, you know, what are they, 16 on the hi-hats, and then, then doubling up on the snare, and then, then right at the end, just dinkling on the cymbals as it fades out. So it was kind of a musical journey for me, and um, I, I love playing. I was very, very proud of, of my playing on that. Uh, yeah, it was a great track, man. 25 years old. I thought, wow, yeah, maybe I've got a future in this. I don't know. <laughs> I think things worked out. <laughs> I'm curious to ask you, Simon, you talk about having a, a pre-existing relationship with piano and guitar. Hmm. No question, having music as your first um, observation and your first sort of discipline, not to say drummers can't be musical, but yeah, make sure you emphasize that. <laughs> yeah. And that they can't be, you know, good listeners, but you're right. Once you actually have 
piano in your arsenal of tools and so on, I think that really does help, as you say, the pocket. Um, but I'm curious to know, how long did you study piano? Piano came, I started playing in 1971, 72. And I've been playing drums for about, uh, since I was 13. I was 13 in 62. So I've been playing drums for 10 years and guitar. And I see. There's a quick thumbnail sketch of why I play guitar, which I'll touch on in a minute. But I wanted to get back to this thing because you guys have kind of un unleashed something about playing uh, playing other instruments and playing drums. And I think Dave, Dave Grohl is another perfect example. Great yeah. drummer. Yeah, yeah. When he plays guitar, there's this sort of – he's enveloped in this, uh, this other way of – playing drums uh in that he because he's a guitarist as well he he listens to what's going on and and not just straight ahead neil pert great drummer yeah uh, a great lyricist um a very very musical drummer because you know the rush were just a three-piece so they were all sort of i pardon the phrase but they were kind of all in musical bed with each other they all right, right. What was going on neil was a wonderful drummer I'd, i mean first time i saw his kit i said fuck me neil are you having a sale he played every one of those drums man he was yeah yeah he did i had the good fortune of being with david mallet over in london when we were working on the uh distant early warning album oh. and being able to sit literally five feet from him while he was doing all his run-throughs because they had to do the overhead boom shots, all the panning shots. So he had to play through the whole song several times. Uh -huh. He didn't miss one symbol. Well, I didn't realize he'd had such a tragic last few years of his life and losing his daughter the way he did and, and then going on the, uh, the, the, the big motorcycle trip just to kind of exercise his awful... Did you read the book? No, 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 I didn't. Really, you should. It's a wonderful book and... It's just, it's uplifting, actually. It's not morose. It's not for, you know, forlorn. It's, yeah. it's actually, actually quite funny at times, you know, but he's. Yeah. If there was ever a guy to have the, that huge kid, it was him. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no yeah. he deserved it. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, those were, he called them his hot rods. You know, he. he right. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's funny. He liked his gear, but he didn't, it wasn't decorative. He played everything. No, he played it. So yeah. Simon, back to your. Yeah. The last three classic tracks I'll mention here. Now, here's one a lot of people maybe don't know from the Desolation Angels record. Did you guys got that from the Kerouac novel, right? The title for the... Yeah, Mick, Mick Mouse came up with a wonderful okay. title. Yeah, Desolation. I remember I went out and bought that one just because, oh, yeah. reading, somebody's reading some Kerouac. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so there's some great tunes on, on there, Gone, Gone, Gone stuff. We all know rock and roll fantasy, but Evil Wind. Hmm. has some really cool drumming on it the hmm. intro where there's no snare on four so you're going and then you leave one off after that that's yeah. really cool man it really works with the song real well <laughs> i just wanted to do something a little different you know yeah i, I kind of got that um for charlie did, did some of that i mean i subconsciously yeah. maybe i nicked it from oh him. yeah like give me shelter Got where he wouldn't play the foot. Yeah. Right, right. But yeah, that was very, very cool stuff. And then, you know, it gets, uh, it starts rocking harder. And then on the outro, then you go into that different beat that's kind of funk, you know, like, boom, boom. Yeah. It kind of gets a little funkier. But anyway, it's just, 
And Mick's playing on that. I mean, I I hadn't heard that one in a long time, probably since it came out. I hadn't just sit and listen to that song because you hear the ones that you hear on radio all the time. But his guitar playing is almost like Steely Danish or something. Really beautiful. It was very underrated. Um, you know, I mean, you're fighting against the big three. You know, Page, Clapton, Beck, and then right. in the coming world, it's Moon, Baker, and Bonham. And right. there's, you know, there's the standard triumvirate or the the four, the big four, whatever you want to call them. But there are lots of other musicians who, you know, stand the test of time. And no Mick's question. playing. You know, the, the the fact that Mick Mick Ralphs was a fun guy, a nice guy. He had no edge to him. He was just a sweetheart. It kind of maybe detracted from his, his you know, the fact that people, you know, like Keith is a pain. Keith Richards, oh, God, how can he still be alive? He plays his great list, you know, but me, right. sweetheart, and I love Keith, don't get me wrong, but we all sure. have Keith's story. But Mick is just one of these amazing guys, and he's playing uh, up and obviously until he had the stroke uh, is just phenomenal. I have yeah. live CDs. We used to record every show, and I got a whole stack of them back wow. from mind. And his playing was just his live playing was stunning, amazing player. Thank you for bringing that up. Oh yeah, man, just just fabulous. Now here, here's the song that I never heard. Was this just an outtake? The song that was on the the remastered version of desolation angel smoking 45 oh yeah dude how come that wasn't on the record well it was written with by boz and a couple of his mates okay and boz was a bit like george harrison he didn't write much but when he did the songs were really really good he wrote gone 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 mm, great one yeah he only wrote about four songs in his life one of them was smoking 45 and when he played us the demo, it was on a little cassette, I went, Jesus, it's really, really good. Um, but there was something going on, you know, with the other members of the band, and it didn't make the cut as much as I would have loved it to have been on the album. Um, it was just a great song, and um, I'm glad that they eventually did put it on the album. because. Well, yeah, I encourage our listeners. There's two versions, and the one that I really dug was the alternative version one it's the first one of the yeah. bunch and man the the verses i've never really heard you do that kind of a beat before it's almost like uh what jeff Picaro was doing about that time i mean you you were like getting your funk on man it was yeah, it's yeah. really cool i know jeff well look, yeah. i grew up with uh, my governor my my number one influence was al jackson oh, oh. well yeah for some reason he just he just knocks my socks off. I can hear that in your playing. He was the most laid back player. What did yeah. Doug Clifford? We interviewed him, and that was his main guy too. Oh, really? Yeah, really? yeah. Wow. Doug's a great guy, and he said, oh, "Man, wow. he was, you know, he was just the best player of slow tempos that ever walked the face of the earth." You know, it's funny. I was talking to Steve Jordan. I, I congratulated him on getting the gig, and I said, "You know, Al would have been proud." He said, "Here, hang on," and he goes out of the frame. And he comes up with this Racton, black Rogers Racton. He said, guess who this belonged to? I said, don't tell me, Al Jackson, you <laughs> bastard. He said, yeah. And for some, I don't know how he got it, but he got hold of Al Jackson's uh, wow. Racton from Memphis and uh, he treasured oh, it. So Steve is a huge, a huge fan of, of, of Al Jackson. And Al played piano, he played bass, he played guitar. 
Mm, so go figure. A musical, yeah, another yeah, a musical back drummer. In the sixties, yeah. So um, he was a very musical drummer. His dad was a band leader. So Al was steeped in in music and not just playing drums, but uh, sure. To my earlier question, were you a, a student of piano, or did you just find piano because no, you? I, I never had a lesson in anything. I, I just. So you, when did you start finding? Because even as someone that did take lessons, such as myself, it was nowhere near as cool as drumming and playing guitar until until Elton and Leon and all those people kind of brought it to the forefront. When did you actually find piano interesting and useful to your writing? And um, well, it, I was making an album called Kossoff, Kirk, Tattoo and Rabbit. It was, it was after Free. Oh, I remember that one. There was a little yeah. sort of uh, break between one of the, the several... Um, What's that title? Kossoff, Paul Kossoff, Kirk, me, oh, okay. Tetsu, the Japanese bass player, bass and player. Rabbit, who played with The Who. Bundrick. Yeah, yeah. It's a great album. It's a really, really good album. And I, we were rehearsing in this tiny cottage in... Uh, in the English countryside, and there was an upright a piano, and yeah. I'd never, never played piano in my life, and I just sat down, um, you know, noodling because I couldn't practice because we lived in a small cottage, and right. different, you know, people were getting up later than others. I couldn't really bang or practice drums, so I just started mm -hmm. noodling on the piano, and I loved it. And to this day, I mean, I, I just love playing piano as much yeah. as drums, you know. But it's a different, it's a different language, you know. Yeah, well, it's hard to write a song on drums too. So there's that. You Not know? really. You well, can come up with if you come up with a great pattern that's interesting, that's then you can write around that. I've done it. That's before. true. You got to remember, Paul Simon wrote the whole of uh, Graceland, driving around in his car, listening to those beats that those drummers had recorded. Oh, really? Oh, wow. He didn't even have a song until he had those drum parts. Wow. So you can Maybe. do it that way. Yeah. All right. He did happen to stumble on a couple of good melodies in his life, too. Yeah, you, you know? think? Yeah, he's done yeah. okay. Yeah. But anyway, so, Simon, I'm going to say one more thing. So, one more tune, and it's the, fir the first one I ever heard was All Right Now, another song that I played. And I, you know, the long version is the only one I really know. When I was looking it up to refresh my memory again yesterday, I kept hearing the ones where they cut out the this yeah. part. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. that—that's the main deal for me. It was like, oh man, that's going to be fun to play yeah. before the bass knows do 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 all that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the reason for that was the the length of time. It comes in at just yeah. under six minutes, and of course, back in the day, this was in 1969 or maybe early 70. I think early 70 when we played it to Chris Blackwell, our manager. He came down and he said, "Well, it's great, guys, but you know, it's too long for top 40 radio." And we're going to have to do an edit. And we were, no, 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 that's our little baby. And where the hell do you edit such a song? So now this is before Pro Tools. And as you know, mm -hmm. uh, you have Pro Tools rig, click and drag. And, you know, you, yeah. uh, back in those days, it was done with a razor blade on, yeah. on the two-inch tape. So he said, it. I want you to leave, leave the studio. Oh, just going back. The reason it had to be under around three, we got away with 3.30, I believe. So they had to cut out nearly over two minutes, which is an awful lot. And we said, well, where, where do we cut? And he said, I, I have a good idea. If you listen to it, it's a terrible edit. It is. That's what I was going to say. It was really not too well done. He's doing the, the two um, reels and it's going zip, 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 zip. Mm -hmm. He's trying to find that. Zero crossing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And we're going, oh, no, no, no. He said, get the fuck out of here. I don't, I don't want you in here because it, it, it was our baby, you know. So yeah, I, yeah. Uh, 20 minutes, you know, he called upstairs and he said, all right, come. It's like delivering a child, delivering a yeah. baby. Mm. Right, come on in. So we sat down <laughs> and listened to it and it took a bit of getting used to. Yeah. Um, but it, it worked. And, and then Top of the Pops, which was the, the TV program in, in England, but now our troubles weren't over because they said, we believe there's an epithet on the, on the vocal track and we need to send one of our guys down to listen because, and it, it, because Paul says, let's move before they raise the parking rate. And he kind of fluffed the P on parking. It comes out as parking. Yeah. So thought, oh God, we're going to pollute the, the youth of England. <laughs> and it's not. So when mm. this guy comes down, he's got a clipboard, he's wearing, you know, a suit, and he says, right, I want to hear the isolated track, the vocal track. So we pull all the faders down, we play the vocal track, and let's move, let's move before we raise the parking rate. Yeah. And, um, he was satisfied and got <laughs> the, the all clear, and, and we had a huge hit on our hands. But they would not have accepted a six-minute track. Mm. That's the reason. I'd say you have a huge hit. That that thing is on the radio still to this day. Yeah, every great. day, everywhere. Great track. Yeah. It's, it's, Absolutely. Yeah, great drum part too, man. I, I, mean, I have to interject though. There's one song that uh, I want to ask about this time. It's uh, Fire and Water. Yeah. Um, I love huh. that song. I've always loved that one. I think what's so interesting about it to me is that the way they bring the, the bass and the drums are so up front in that song. And there's that little break. And it's just, it, I love that the sound of that song. Uh, can you talk about that one? I, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I had a drumming breakthrough in 1969. I was 20, and I was still trying to find my own sound. And any musician will tell you that there's a a period of time where you're learning from other people. You're listening. Now you go to YouTube or you go to Google. And you you listen and you listen and and you you get your own amalgam of sounds. Yeah. And then like a like a, a chrysalis. You become this butterfly and you have your own fucking style, whatever you want to call it. And around about that time, I heard Russ Kunkel playing on Fire and Water. Yeah. And it, was, it, was, it was like a light bulb went off because I was very busy. If you listen to the two albums <coughs> before, you know, um, uh, Tons of Sobs and Free, I'm still a little busy, still trying to find my own groove. And then I heard this wonderful doom with brushes too with brushes Fire I mean, and rain, like, yeah. what mm -hmm. and apparently they were they were mic very very close it was just a wonderful groove and i just sort of i i kind of incorporated russ kunkel's uh simplicity into my playing that less is more yeah. uh, and and um that so fire and water was where that really started to happen and by the end of doing that and the last track we did by the way was all right now hmm. uh -huh. so, um and i was playing h originally and it just didn't swing uh so i ended up doing four yeah it was a lot, it was a, a, lot of, a lot of your grooves are like that yeah a lot of quarter yeah, note stuff yeah. yeah but thank you for that uh, yeah of course and, yeah bringing that one up yeah yeah so we're going to switch gears and talk about album art a little bit with uh, yeah. Hugh's, uh, Hugh's background. So I'm going to pass it over to him. 
Okay. I always have a kind of an amalgam of anticipation, dread, and and hope when I talk to musicians about art. When I look at your first cover, the black and white cover, that's yeah. simple as it is, is iconic. It's a beautiful cover, and it's still, and of course, you all thought so because that logo survived. Well, it did. Yeah. Who in your band took a keen interest in in where the cover? Because you've got all these cool kind of conceptual covers like Dangerous Age and Straight Shooter and Here Comes Trouble. You know, those those aren't lost on me. I love those kinds of whimsical, unexpected interpretations of a good title, you know. Well, look, getting back to the first, the iconic uh, album cover, the first album, that yeah. was the, the dream child of hypnosis. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and they these two guys did albums by Zeppelin and Floyd. And, of course, yeah. they were the bee's knees in England at the time. So when we hitched our wagon to Swan Song and Peter Graham right. Zeppelin, uh, Peter said, do we have a couple of guys for you? Yeah. And they came around to see us. We all had a huge joint. I liked them immediately. We, of course, we completely forgot what we were in the office for because we were so right. And then he started bringing <laughs> out all these um, uh, these different fonts. Yeah. And and we liked the one, the sloping one, which you yeah. see. And if you look very carefully on the white, you'll see a palm print. It's all palm. You'll see the, the etchings of a, I believe it was uh, one of the guy's <laughs> palm. And the thing was, it was bad. Hey, man, that's bad. And give me five. And yeah, screw. yeah. Uh, so that dates it. I mean, we're going back nearly 50 years when everything was high-fired and give me some skin, la, la, la. So bad meaning good. You don't still do that? Good Lord, no. <laughs> no especially not after the last two years, right? Oh, man. Well, we still do that here in Indiana. Yeah, we're hillbillies, true. man. We never, we never <laughs> left it behind. <laughs> Speak for yourself there, Clark. <laughs> I've been a huge fan of hypnosis naturally. Just, I mean, they were a driving force in... And how Looking I through my eyes. No, I'm just yeah. How I discovered the the option of doing art for that frontier. They they suggested we have a gatefold, and Atlantic were really you know we kind of and Peter Grant insisted. He said, "Look, we've got four good-looking guys here. You're not going to stick them on a a tiny photo at the back of the album. I want a fucking gatefold." And Peter Grant got what he wanted. Uh, and, you know, we're up to about 10 million copies now, so he must have been doing something right. Right. Mm. How many albums did they do? I mean, what I, I recognize that uh, Desolation Angels was hypnosis. Were they kind of your go-to guys all the way through? You'd have to look. Honestly, I don't quite remember, Hugh, quite honestly. Yeah. I know they did Desolation because we flew them out to the desert. I mean, now right. you just Photoshop it and save yourself uh, $50,000. Like Storm's um, beds on the beach <laughs> for a momentary moment of lap, lapse and memory. Yeah, you know what happened on that? The tide huh? came in and they had to reshoot it the following day because the beds started getting kind of claimed by the surf. Sounds like them, yeah. Yeah, they should have called it one joint too many. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, the straight shooter, I believe they did. Yes, they did. Yeah. If they had an idea about having dice thrown oh, at yeah. the lens, which we did. Yeah. Yeah. Way before Photoshop, we had to do that physically. Run with the pack, I believe, was them as well. Uh, Romulus and Remus, um, uh, you know, um, uh, the wolves, the, the mother. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they were responsible. But, but when Brian Howe came in, uh, no, we, we, we didn't do any. They didn't come on board until 
no, I think that was it. Desolation Angel was the last one they did for us. Yeah. So who in the band was the most responsible and the most, I mean, was it all label based or do you guys uh, have a hand in sort of adjudicating the, the briefs that were being given to you by the artists? Well, yeah, in terms of like, the first album, we stayed, me and Bob stayed up all night writing the credits and writing the, you know, the, the back cover. That was me and Bob. I mean, it right. wouldn't be done nowadays, but that's, we wanted to keep it all, you know, under our, our own jurisdiction. But we had a hand in just about everything. Um, as the years went by, you know, we kind of lost interest in a way. Yeah. Because we were more in, intent on the music. Once you're established as an artist, yeah, you don't really pay that much attention. It's quite natural, you know. Yeah. Someone says, oh, we want to do a cover for the sixth album, and the last five have all gone multi-platinum. You say, all right, we'll get on with it, and we'll just concentrate on the music. Sure. Right. This is what we did, you know. Probably how the White Album happened, you know. They were just so busy doing... I mean, don't put anything the on Beatles that. could do that, right? <laughs> Only the Beatles. You think about that. That is so cheeky and so um, brilliant, yeah. For sure. How about your solo albums, though? Because you've had three solo albums. The last yeah. one, All Because of You, is in 17. So I would imagine you've got a huge hand in all of that, correct? I did, yeah. I, I, I mean, that was my... The, the last one was the most professional in that the first two were kind of hobbies. And even though I wrote all the songs, um, I they were like a hobby for me. I did them in my home studio, and I designed the covers myself. And the third one, which was released on uh, through BMG Records, they said, you know, they didn't actually say, but they intimated that we want this to be, you know, a professional job. So I went to Chicago. I rehearsed with a great band called The Empty Pockets. We recorded it in a proper studio and, um, you know, did the whole thing and. Uh, I, I was very, very, very proud of it. And um, and the record you're talking of is is all because of you, right? Correct. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Man, your voice sounds great. Uh, that track, it's like Paul Rogers has been rubbing off on you, man. <laughs> well, really? I've been a long time, you know. Um, <laughs> I had no idea you could do that. I'm not a blues singer, but he is. Uh, but I have more of a, I don't know, a Winwood. You do have a Winwood. I was going to say that song kind of sounds like Traffic updated mm -hmm. with the conga part and everything in it. Yeah. That's a good tune, man. I liked it. Thank you. You bring up a good point before you before you got on with us. We were talking about you a little bit, talking about Bad Company, and uh, we were we were all in agreement that a lot of bands from that that era say they were influenced and they're a blues based rock band, and a lot of them you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay, everybody says that, but you guys, you can hear it. <laughs> you know, it's deep in there, and uh, so we were just talking a little bit about that. But it was still a very clever amalgam of. Oh, yeah. Beautiful blues. And pop rock and hard rock and blues, yeah. Mm. Yeah, good pop sensibility for sure. Well, if you ask Paul Rogers, his, you know, two or three biggest influences, he'll straight away, he'll say, oh, it's ready, number one. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Wilson Pickett, you know, Ray Charles. I mean, he's he's very much influenced by, by black artists. Right. As we, as Free, because Free came up in the blues boom, in England, which is in the mid to late 60s. Right. And we were all listening to uh, John Lee Hooker and J.B. Lenoir, Howling Wolf. You know, the Beatles and the Stones did get a look in, but yeah. because they were, they were like our neighbors. 
Yeah. It wasn't right. like they were, they were great, mm-hmm. but they didn't have that exotic allure that Howling Wolf had or Muddy Waters and, and you know, it, it's where the Stones got their, their inspiration from. Buddy Guy and the, one of uh, Eric Clapton's biggest influences was B.B. King and Buddy Guy. Mm-hmm. No question. Yeah. What's a day in the life in your house nowadays? Who do you crank up to? Oh, wow. I, you know, I don't really veer that much from the stuff I've been listening to for years and years. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I'm listening to a lot of swing jazz, Benny Goodman. Yeah. Oh, nice. Some of the playing is just, and I tell you what, and I don't care if anyone says, what the fuck's he talking about? Some of today's modern country is fantastic. The drumming, I've been listening to Zach Brown, mm-hmm. um, Zach Brown band, and I've got this sort of playlist of top country songs. It's fantastic. The guitar playing, the drumming, some of the, these drummers oh, yeah. today. Yeah. Just amazing. And, and I mean, one of my daughters used to say, oh, the, the country music, isn't that farm music, Dad? I said, no, it's not bloody farm music. It's really, really good. There's some wonderful instrumentalists. So I listen to all sorts of music right now. And, yeah. um, you know, the Arctic Monkeys are another, another good oh, one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I haven't really heard anything new per se because so much of it is – computer driven nowadays with loops yeah it doesn't interest a lot of me. that yeah 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 zach brown band's incredible incredible live band oh, they, they kind of remind me they're not they remind me of a, a little bit of the allman brothers in some ways yeah. just their sound yeah. but they're incredible there's no doubt yeah about their drummer's amazing mm-hmm. amazing guy. yeah yeah, yeah it's a good player so you mentioned yeah. uh, the beatles and we we got to ask you about playing with Ringo and his all-star band. Uh-huh. We've had several guests on here. We had Nils. We've had Mark uh-huh. Rivera. Uh, we had Peter Frampton, John Waite, a bunch of people that have played with Ringo over the years. So tell us about your Ringo experience. We'd love to hear. Oh, it, well, it, it was an honor you know, to, to play with him because, you know, it's no secret that I had my trouble with uh, substance abuse and I just come out of rehab and I got a call from Ringo in 96. So I just come out of, uh, of rehab and and my daughter i was in my little music study and she came in she was only about 11 she sort of tapped me on the back said ringo stars on the phone and i thought she was kidding i thought her mother had sent her in you know i said yeah yeah come on it's off no no he's on the phone he's on the phone so anyway i picked it up and uh and hello i said hello who's this he said well it's ringo and i thought fuck me it really is because um, no American can do a Ringo Starr accent. <laughs> right. I said, he said, um, how are you? How is rehab? I thought, fucking hell, how does he know that? Because, <laughs> you know, it's a small village. We all, mm, everyone yeah. knows everyone's business. Nice open sign, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's, you know, he's quite upfront about being in recovery. And, yeah. and he said, look, uh, how do you fancy uh, coming, you know, doing an all-star tour? Are you available? He said, well, yeah, we're not doing anything. Bad Company's just on another one of its hiatus. And he said, well, this is what you do. You know, you sing two songs and then you back, you know, you back me when I play my songs. And and he said, um, I said, well, who's, who's in the band? He said, well, Jack Bruce. And I nearly said, stop right there. 
because fucking <laughs> yeah. then he said Peter Frampton. I'm like, oh my god, Mark Rivera, who I know and love, one of the greatest guys in the world, the great guy, and uh, Gary Brooker from Procol Harum. Mm-hmm. And he said it's a sure. small band, you know, it's only uh, it's only me and and these guys. I said, what do you think? Uh, I said I'd I'd love to. He said, well, how do you how do you feel about playing sober? And I thought, cool, he doesn't hang around, does he? Uh, I said, I'll give it a shot, Richie. I'll give it a shot. He said, okay. By the way, call me Ringo. He hmm. said, when you're my friend, you can call me Richie. I thought, oh, fucking hell. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, <laughs> boss. So after the first rehearsal, I said, is it all right to call you Richie? He said, yeah. Hmm. So we went out to LA and, and we, uh, we rehearsed and it was great. It was wonderful. And... It's one of the best bands I ever played with. And to play with Ringo, we kind of have very similar, sim- simple, solid styles. Yeah. Uh, we just, we from the get-go, we sort of said, you take the first fill and I'll, you know, because if you do two fills together, they're not going to... Yeah, it's a mess. No, they have rain, a train wreck. So he took the first uh, fill and then we just alternated and... By the end of the tour, we did about 30, 35 shows. It was wonderful, wonderful band. Nice. Yeah. Did you ever play a salty dog with Gary Brooker? No. It's, it's funny you should mention that because every gig, Peter Frampton and Gary had their little party piece. The band would go off to, in the wings, and um, Peter would always would play uh, Norwegian Wood, and Gary would always play Salty Dog. Oh, by himself. Uh, so he never played it by himself, and it was just amazing. So, good question. Yeah. yeah. yeah BJ Wilson was a cool player, too. I like what he did. Lovely drummer. Yeah. yeah. So, you mentioned early on the uh, the Peter Grant days. How long did Peter Grant manage Bad Company? Well, he managed uh, us for about six years. Was it that long? Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, what happened, 1980 was one of the worst years for rock and roll. Bonzo died. Lennon was shot. And because Bonzo died, you know, Zeppelin broke up. Peter Grant had a meltdown. He had a very bad uh, drug problem. And he went into seclusion and uh, Bad Company broke up really around 82. We we just sort of soldiered on. We did Rough Diamonds in 81. We managed to sort of keep it together. And then 1982, we, we just went. But Peter kind of uh, faded away in 1980. But for the six years that he was with us, he did an amazing. He was an amazing guy. Hmm. He, if he loved you, he'd love you till the, the you know the end of time. But if he didn't like you, get the hell out of Dodge because hmm. he could be a mean guy. And uh, I saw that several times. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. He was a wrestler, right? You know, he was an ex wrestler. He was a. He was an. He told me about this story. Listen to this. So he, he was worked for this guy called Don Arden, who made Peter Grant look like a babysitter. Mm-hmm. Don Arden was a real tough East End gangster. I mean, he's, he's, he was legendary. So he brings Little Richard over from the States. Now, Little Richard was probably 25, 26, a closet queen, as we all know now, but a real prima donna. We're talking, you know, if he didn't like playing, he wouldn't play. So he's playing at some gig in Brighton. Little Richard, I mean, my God, yeah. amazing. Place is packed. There's no little Richard. So Don Arden picks up the phone. He says, Peter, go and get Richard Pennyman or his balls will be hanging from this ceiling. Go and get him. 
<laughs> so Peter, we call him G. G goes round, knocks on the hotel room, uh, 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 Little Richard, and Little Richard says, I'm not in. <laughs> and G, G, said, G says, Richard, you are in, and I'm coming in. Open this fucking door. So, you know, he could tell by his, uh, Peter's tone that he was serious. So uh, little Richard opens the door and he says, you're going down this. He said, I don't feel well. I haven't been paid and I'm, I'm not going on. So G takes him in an arm lock and he sort of semi chokes him, rolls him up in a carpet like a burrito. Wow, man. Right? <laughs> puts, him over, puts him over his shoulder in this carpet. He can't move. Puts him over his shoulder, goes down the stairs to the van, puts the little Richard burrito in the back of the van, and takes him to the Palladium. <laughs> wow! <of Ryan>. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! That's a story. Yeah, that's, great. that's a lovely. That's story. That's a guy yeah. you don't want to mess with, there, Mr. Grant. No, wow. I never harmed the hair on his head. I didn't. Harm the hair on his head. <laughs> wow. I bet not. Did he see the whimsy and, and did he enjoy that at the end of the I day? I think he did. I think, G, I think little Richard had a, a begrudging respect for Peter Grant after that because nice. he did a great show. He did a wonderful show, apparently. Hmm. Uh, wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. He probably didn't want to be a burrito after the show if he'd messed up. <laughs> no, no, he'd be a bloody taco, if you ask me. I don't know. <laughs> Something would have happened. What, one question that we always ask guests is, what was the first live concert that you went to that you paid to go to as a fan? Oh, wow. Good question. Well, I'm dating myself. I'm 72 now. So my first gig was the Hollies, Dave Clark Five, the Swinging Blue Jeans. And that was a little package tour that was going around England. Dave Clark Five had uh, bits and pieces. They were that the big hit. Glad all over. Yeah. Uh, and, and they were huge. So that was the first package tour that I ever saw. Uh, but the, 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 the best band for me were the Hollies. They were a wonderful band, man. They were amazing, yeah. Bobby oh, Elliott, good drummer. Bobby Elliott on drums. Yeah. My God. He did a great thing, which I've never seen before or since. Bobby came on just with his sticks, you know, the kit, and started doing this amazing groove. And then they all sort of came on, the bass player, and then, you know, then Graham Nash and then the guitar and until the, all, all five of them were on. And yeah. it was a great way of, of introducing uh, the band. But the, And then they, their harmonies, they were just mm, perfect. They wiped the floor with Dave Clark Five, I thought, um, because uh, they, they, the Hollies were really an amazing, amazing bunch of musicians. Yeah, they were. And, and great songs, too. Of course, Godly and Graham were behind a lot of that. Yeah. I know we got to wrap this up, but I, as someone who I kind of denigrated for a long time, but I found through YouTube a newfound respect is Carl Palmer. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I was never a huge fan of that particular style of progressive rock, you know, but ELP were an amazing band. It yeah. just wasn't cup of tea i was a black music r&b soul whatever but then i saw carl do um he goes out you know with some other guys and does a bunch of elp songs and so on he's an amazing drummer he really yeah. is i have a newfound respect for him because it's just him and a snare he does he's real good at that mm -hmm. man i yeah. tell you what he was dane you'd appreciate that oh he's he always had a single stroke role that was to oh. die for in a Buddy Rich kind of a fashion. We used to date Kathy, uh, Buddy's daughter. Really? Oh, yeah, hmm. yeah. 
And so he would sit with Buddy. Of course, Buddy was this crusty old, oh, yeah. one of the greatest drummers ever, by the way. No the question. Incredible drummer. By the way, there's no such thing as the best drummer in my nope. No, nope. no. You can, the stopwatch, the tape measure, all right, the fastest, the highest, whatever. But uh. when it comes to music, there's no such thing as the best. But Buddy uh. Rich would do things that just floor me. For, for parlor trick drumming, that you, you there's no way to be you can't play your foot faster than he could no one can play the one hand faster than he could i saw him live and he, he held a stick up like this when i was in high school in the 70s about 74 and he yeah. played a role with this stick against it i mean it's like okay yeah i mean all right <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can't use that in a song but damn it it's pretty impressive did you ever listen to Neil Peart's uh, Burning for Buddy series, the two albums he put together? No, I didn't. Oh, yeah, I've heard it. He brought a lot of mu musicians together, people like Ed Thigpen, Matt Sorum, all these yeah. unrelated drummers just to play on Buddy Rich tracks. Uh -huh. I got to talk to Kathy a few times because I, I got these great photos of Buddy and, and, and the, the Rat Pack and all these great photos to put inside the booklet. But, you know, having, having these different drummers come in, do their thing to Buddy's music, but Neil woodshedded for about three months, just really trying to get inside his style. He was the only one that sort of did that. And some of those guys ended up sounding better at that than others did. Uh, okay. I mean, I think. The cats in the, in the band, the sort of 17-piece orchestra, a few of them were from Buddy's original band. And they kind of, uh, they took him aside and said, you nailed it. You did a great job, you know, which was uh, a big deal. Because he, he actually went to Freddie Gruber for a... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. With a... That different technique, yeah. Yeah, he he went from pistol grip to regular tech, you know, uh, stick position. He sat up straighter. Yeah. He said, learn to drum again, if you can imagine Neil, <laughs> you know. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Simon, for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you, it. guys. Very good questions and uh, good company, if you pardon me. Yeah, likewise. Yep. Yes, not bad. <laughs> okay. Great talking to you, man. Thank you. Bye -bye. God bless. Bye-bye. All the best. Thank you. Bye.